This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It has really pushed our public sector customers and a lot of my regulated industry customers to move much faster to the cloud. So there's been more innovation, I would say, in the last seven months as there was in the last two to two and a half years. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Teresa Carlson, the founder of Amazon Web Services Worldwide Public Sector, is well-known globally for her thought leadership in technology and her advocacy of cloud computing. Carlson has spent the last decade leading efforts to modernize tech policy for governments, institutions, and organizations looking to innovate and create a 21st century global workforce. I spoke with her about current tech trends, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on innovation, and her efforts to support women in tech. Teresa, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Welcome. Beverly, it's great to be here on the Smart Women, Smart Power broadcast. Well, you're the vice president of Amazon Web Services Worldwide Public Sector. And for those who may not know, talk about what AWS Worldwide Sector does. Well, you know, it's interesting. I guess since the last time they gave you this update, my title's changed a little bit because now I not only run our worldwide public sector business, uh, Beverly, I also have our regulated industries business. I have financial services, energy, telecommunications, and our training and certification team. And that is along with my public sector business, which we started in 2010, I just crossed over going into my now my 11th year at Amazon Web Services. I passed my 10th and public sector is globally anything that's government, education, not for profit and NGOs and all the community of partners within that. So that's kind of my my business unit, as well as those regulated industries that I just talked about. But in between all that, in June, we also launched a new industry business unit called Aerospace and Satellite. So that's kind of my purview. So I have a really great set of customers and partners worldwide that I actually get to work with. And we provide cloud computing for those of you who may or may not know, but that's where we provide massive scale infrastructure in our data centers globally in all kinds of regions and countries around the world. And it provides our customers the ability to do their workloads on demand scale up and scale down their mission workloads when they need them, pay for only what they use, their ability to really move globally quickly with their workloads. And most importantly, I think one of the things for my government customers, it's really allowed them that ability for experimentation, trying things, failing quickly before they spend millions and billions of dollars on technology that they actually may not be able to use. So it's really exciting. Like I said, 10 years going into my 11th, and it's just gone so, so fast. In that 10 years time, what was the cloud computing landscape like when you started out versus what it is today? Wow, it has changed so much. When I started at AWS in 2010, I I literally, it was a startup. My business was, you know, AWS was a startup within Amazon and my business was a startup within AWS. 
And when I started, I had two team members on my team when I started, one solution architect who'd been there for a few months and one account executive who'd been there for a few months. So literally, we kind of built the business up. But I will share with you in the early days, Beverly, folks really did not know what cloud computing was. I kind of tell a story that I would go to Capitol Hill and speak with congressional leaders that I'd known from my previous world in another technology company. And they would say to me, oh, you know, hey, Teresa, are you here to talk about books or taxes? And I would say, no, I'm here to talk about cloud computing. And they would, they, most of them did not know what cloud computing was at the time. So fast forward today, 2020, almost 2021, I can tell you they all know what cloud computing is. And also the, the big change outside of just, you know, knowledge of what cloud computing is and how it works and operates for organizations and businesses around the world, they also now, I would say, understand how they buy, acquire cloud computing technologies, how it allows them to, again, try things, experiment, and differentiate, just innovate so much faster. And it's a big change for governments worldwide because in the old days, I'll call it now, not so long ago, when they bought technology or servers, they had to buy them, wait for them to get shipped, arrive, then they had to configure them and go through all the security processes. And now with cloud, we've done all that in a virtual infrastructure that allows them to immediately, within minutes, be able to stand up a data center on a console. So um, it's really it's really quite interesting to see the global change. And And one of the things that we always talked about in the early days was that We really wanted to pave the way for disruptive innovation and make the world a better place with our technology. And I remember the first time I met our CEO, Andy Jassy, in 2009, and Andy and I actually talked about governments should have the same opportunity in educational institutions uh, with great technology as any startup should have. And we decided at that point in time that we were going to be on a course to really support and help our customers by bringing innovative technologies to them. And it's been it's been a journey and we're still just getting started, but we definitely, I think, have made a really big difference in what we're doing around the world, in the U.S. and around the world, with how we brought technology into the mainstream of their mission capabilities. You talk about how it's evolved over the 10 years and how fast things change. Governments usually move pretty slowly. How were you able to convince folks to sign on to cloud computing and handle all of the ways that tech moves so quickly? It's changing constantly and, you know, government doesn't move that fast. How tough a sell did you have? Well, I will say it's been an honor to be part of a company that is so customer obsessed. And I would say it was really earning trust and having customer obsession that allowed us to be where we are today. And that's primarily because we really thought long-term about where we wanted to be with these customers. And we weren't just trying to sell them something. So in those early days when we would go in, generally their their first concerns was about security. And they would say, cloud's not secure. We can't use the cloud. And, and we spent our time being really thoughtful and patient with the customers and diving very deep with them and asking them questions about, well, explain to us why you think it's not secure. And we would really take it in small chunks and spend the time explaining to them, demonstrating to them. 
and then working really closely with a partnership with the, starting with the U.S. government, where we originally worked with a security protocol called FISMA, which is pretty outdated today. Actually, uh, we were one of the founding partners on creating FedRAMP, which is the first cloud security model for a government. And now other governments, the U.S. has this, and now other governments around the world actually have, have used that as a model. But we were super patient, and we, again, I would say one of the first big things that we demonstrated was taking on each one of those components of security, demonstrating it was secure and what was more secure, and then proving it was secure, and then also allowing them to do that experimentation so they could actually try cloud computing out for very little. We had free tiers so they could try it and learn and understand because in the beginning, it almost seemed like voodoo to a lot of people like, this can't possibly be the case that I can pull up a console on my computer and actually spin up uh, servers and storage. So we had to really be patient on that. But one of the other big changes, Beverly, that happened in 2013, we earned the trust and the ability to support the U.S. intelligence community and build and operate and certify a first-of-its-kind capability uh, cloud to bring speed, scale, and innovation to them. And they were really ahead of the curve where they had been looking at cloud computing already and came to us and said, hey, we've been looking and we believe that we have to begin to use cloud computing now. We have to stay ahead of the curve. And you know, the interesting thing about the U.S. intelligence community, even in 2013, they said, look, could we build our own cloud? And sure, they could have built it. But one of the things they recognized is that they couldn't continue to innovate on it and that they needed to have a public partnership with a commercial cloud company that could allow them to continually innovate. And one of the things we brought to the table was continuous innovation, where we provide innovation ahead of demand. And think about that. Governments just did not have the ability to, again, try, have that innovation ahead of their demand. They always had to put requirements out, make sure somebody could build it, wait for it to be built, and then just hope and keep their fingers crossed that it would work. And I think that was one of the things, just back to your point of what did we do and how did we work so fast? Well, I guess when I look back now and say what we've accomplished in 10 years, I kind of have to say, wow, it's a lot. And we have moved really fast, but that's also cloud. But then I also have to say, but we have so much more to do because we're, we're really just getting started. And just to drill down a bit on the security question, what are some of the concerns, in particular the intelligence community, if you can even talk about that, but what, what were some of the security concerns that they had about cloud computing and what were you able to do to resolve them? Well, many of them at the time were actually fairly basic kind of concerns. They didn't think they had control, as an example. One was just they had an assumption they had no control of what they were doing. The second assumption they had was that they had no control where their data was put. Their data would be placed anywhere around the world and they wouldn't be able to control that. They had a, also an assumption that everybody was watching and viewing their data all the time. Another one was that there was no way to encrypt that data and so, and that it all would move over the internet. And so there were things that we had done already, which was a VPN, a virtual private cloud, 
where we had already, you know, in the early days, even before I showed up, AWS had actually hired a really fantastic security team run by Steve Schmidt, who came from the from the FBI Department of Justice. And he was here before I got here. And they had already begun to take government requirements at AWS before I got here and, and start to create the right level of tooling based on their knowledge of what governments needed. And they were applying that knowledge to commercial industry. So from day one, it's always been a priority of AWS on security privacy of our customers. But just one was with AWS is you control where your data is. You make the decision. You can encrypt all your data at in rest and at transit. You can even control your encryption keys today. But you have control. And I think that was was one of the big key things. And then there's so many more. I mean, we could spend, Beverly, two hours just talking about the security. So at some point, we should come back and just have a security conversation because there, there's a lot. There's a lot there. But I'll also just, if I can go back for a minute, what I'll share is what I feel fantastic about is the partnerships now that we've created globally, because now we serve tens of thousands of government agencies around the world. Now we have teams on the ground in 42 countries and we have customers in 182 countries. So that went from, you know, starting in the U.S. So we've really, I think, earned the trust of so many more now and they understand what cloud computing can do to really drive their mission. And one last question on these issues before I pivot to the tech trends and what you're seeing these days. I know that Amazon competed for DOD's Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, better known as JEDI, cloud contract, and that was awarded to Microsoft, but there's still some legal complaints being argued. I know you probably can't say much about it, but I just want to give you the opportunity if there is anything you can say about that. I would just say one of the things I'll start with is that we love and are so excited about the work we do with the U.S. Department of Defense. We have a really significant team that supports DOD within my business. They are all so committed along with our entire, our entire team. So we're already doing a lot of work with DOD. We continue to do work with DOD and many different of the, of the workloads. So we're excited about that. And we, we really closely partner with them in all different ways. So for us, we really strongly believe that our work in DOD will continue regardless of JEDI. But at this point, we also strongly believe that we had a much better technical and pricing capability in our bid. And we'll continue to make sure that we elevate every customer to have the best opportunity to have the right technology. But our work with AWS and the Department of Defense will continue to move fast and we're excited. That's not going to slow down. And what I found over the many years I've worked with government is that DOD, you can't slow them down. They keep finding ways to buy the technology and move fast and innovate because you know what, Beverly, you can't fight the mission. You have to help them drive that mission forward. And that is really our job. Let's talk about tech trends and innovation. This year, 2020 has been I would say an incredible year because of the COVID-19 pandemic, incredible, not in a good way in health terms, but in the innovation tech space, it's really pushed forward in terms of 
pushing people to work remotely. And I'm sure that that's had an impact on what you do. So what are the most significant trends that you have seen and how is COVID impacting cloud computing? Well, I'll go, I'll go back for just a moment and say we started in March as a team really noticing the impact. Well, February with our Asia business. And we started getting on a phone call twice a day with all the teams around the world in our public policy when we saw the pandemic was moving pretty quickly through Asia, Europe, North America, and Latin America. And we started working as a team to determine what lessons are we learning? How can we take those lessons and rapidly scale them to help all of our government and education customers around the world? And while we never wish a pandemic of this or any type on the world, it's the one time you can say we're kind of all in this together and we were learning and taking those learnings just to move fast. But I will have to say it has really pushed our public sector customers and a lot of my regulated industry customers to move much faster to the cloud. So there's been more innovation, I would say, in the last seven months as there was in the last two to two and a half years. And our customers, as I just shared, Beverly, were already moving really, really fast. But the thing that was different in COVID was the customers just could not get into their workspaces or data centers to operate. So cloud computing, we talked about it, you could do it from a console. They were able to be at home or in a virtual work environment and do their jobs. We saw a big pivot to online education. Millions and millions of students now are on the world. We got them, we got them up and running on their virtual work sites for education within days, not weeks. We set up virtual call centers for our customers to be able to set up virtual call sites. So folks didn't have to go into a call center where you have a whole bunch of people. They could set up from a uh, phone call at home and not only be there, but actually automate a lot of those calls, have deeper understanding from the, from the calls through machine learning and artificial intelligence. We also saw governments needing to interact in ways with their citizens to provide them the resources. So at no time, Beverly, I remember my life, did citizens tune in to hear what their government was saying on any media, from a podcast to network news to online to print, but they were constantly, they were, they couldn't get enough information and were still in information kind of overload about this, but they needed to know, do I stay home? Can I go out? Do I have to wear a mask? Do I need to get a test? Where do I go to get tested? If I have to go to the hospital, where can I get a bed? What are the rules? If I need services, food, unemployment benefits, so there was like this massive amount of information all of a sudden that the citizens needed to be aware of. So our governments needed to quickly vector. We saw lots of governments around the world and states doing contact tracing, and they still are. Uh, the next thing you'll see is vaccination tracing. Who's vaccinated? Where are they? Are they moving? Are they traveling? So all of this needed to happen with what I call multiple sets of data that you put together for a common operating picture. So you really understood what was happening in your city, in your county, in your state, in your country, in your region. So, um, and then of course, with the development of the vaccines, the pharmaceuticals and healthcare institutions have needed to move really fast on the research and cloud computing became a differentiator for scale. 
you know, they needed to scale up, process, analyze, and store that data, and then share it in data lakes. So it's just, it's been a very fast-moving train, and we've had thousands of new applications being developed during COVID because, guess what? Their old infrastructure and applications just didn't work anymore. They just didn't scale. So I don't expect Beverly Estic ever go back now from where we've been. I think we'll keep going forward. And looking forward, what tech trends should we be watching as we move through the pandemic? And hopefully at some point the pandemic will be over, but still there will be tech trends that that come about because of what we've seen so far. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I think the changes our customers have made in response to COVID can fuel permanent change in the way not just public sector serves the communities, but I think also how enterprises serve their customers as well. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw many of the customers focus on tackling only the most urgent problems, Beverly. And recently, they've shifted to being much more strategic and thinking longer term about the needs of the future. So I think that's one you're going to see a more long-term view and approach to rethink processes and not kind of go back from where they were. I anticipate a lot of organizations are going to move more ideally hybrid technology models that really achieve to seek the best outcomes and best for, for both of those worlds. And then I would also say that just, you know, I think about groups like the Red Cross who I've been part of for a very long time. And, you know, the Red Cross for years has been has been really advocating for proactive preparedness. And they always said enterprises, companies should be prepared in governments. And that now is prepared your data. Your data should be backed up, prepared as individuals, know what to do. So I think a big trend is more you're going to see more proactive preparedness as well. And then also governments that invested early in new infrastructure, they came out relatively unscathed. So I think you're going to see this big move rapidly to a modern approach to infrastructure worldwide for sure. So I think, you know, in general, again, I would say a focus on skilling. Uh, we've seen a skills emergence where both at the, at the educational institutions and at enterprises, they're doing upskilling and reskilling because now they see a big need to have those technology credentials within their organization. And that was happening, by the way, while COVID was going on, we saw a huge surge in our online training and just individuals being upskilled and trained. So I think that you'll see a surge in new digital skills and cyber, which we talked about because during COVID, there was such a big explosion of ransomware and cyber attacks. So it's brought the attention to government and enterprise organizations that they have to be, again, prepared. They have to understand how they back up and encrypt their data and really have a disaster management and improvement plan in place. So lots of things going on. I also think we're not going to see a 100% back to the office. I think you'll see that more companies are going to allow and prepare and equip their workers so that if they need to work from home, They'll work from home. And I also think we've all learned a lot about how to be more virtual. Things I thought I could never do virtually, I've accomplished. We, I want to get back to the office. Let me just be clear. But my team, who I know is very tired and they're so amazing, and our customers who are tired and amazing. But, I mean, we've not really missed a beat in, in our work with our customers. 
I think you're right about the companies having to be prepared for a different kind of workforce with more people figuring out, hey, I can work from home. And I think you're going to see a lot of people who are going to want to divide their time between the office and home, much more so than we did before the pandemic. Totally. Yeah, totally. I just was on an interview today, by the way, with Klaus Schwab, Professor Klaus Schwab, who started the World Economic Forum, I want to say in 1971, which we belong to. And he made a statement today that I thought was really interesting about leaders during COVID, great leaders that have vectored have had to have these four skills. And I was like, oh, what are these four skills? And he said, brains, heart, soul, and muscle. And he went through describing each one of these. And I thought to myself, it's really true because you've got to have brains to think through uh, what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. You've got to have soul because you do have to have empathy and the ability to have grace, which I like to say with my team and work in situations that you really didn't think about. You have to have heart because you really have to understand both where your customers are coming from and your employees are coming from as a leader and balance all of that and understand from a heart and soul perspective, what new things do you need to be looking at and thinking from around the corners coming to you around the corners? And you have to have muscle because all of us in the industry had to build new muscle to be able to work remotely and do our jobs and now think about our businesses and our organizations as we move forward. That's absolutely brilliant. I want to ask you, before we run out of time, about uh, supporting women in tech. You launched AWS's We Power Tech initiative. What needs to happen to get more women in tech and more people from underrepresented groups in tech? Let me tell you, we're not where we need to be, Beverly. Diversity and inclusion is still a big challenge. But I will have to say it is improving because we have a focus on it. You've probably seen during COVID, I mean, hundreds of thousands of women have been displaced or had to leave the work environment because of the changes. And when it comes down to it, the female usually in the home is the one that that stops work or changes her work environment. And we've, we've got to stop the bleeding. The thing that concerns me right now is we don't want all the progress that we've been making to take us backwards. And we're at a real possible tipping point right now of that happening. So we have to be super aware and stop it. I will have to say at Amazon today, we don't, we don't have that issue. The data is not showing us that our women are leaving our workforce. We've tried to be really flexible with them because everybody's facing challenges. The two members of that family that have the children at home, when they have children or an elderly parent like I do, you both are working at it for sure. But it's just the data is showing us that the women are the ones that are being disproportionately affected in this situation. And it's funny, We Power Tech is very specifically focused on diversity and inclusion finding women, uh, individuals of color across the world, by the way, that we can both encourage, train, and develop and get them to understand that there's so many jobs across tech that they can be doing and have a fantastic career. And I think you're going to see some new studies come out very soon that demonstrate and show that the technology careers actually pay better. There's lots of differentiation in those jobs and that the opportunity for income growth is pretty phenomenal. And the types of jobs that are actually in tech companies are so diverse that women, there's nothing 
There is absolutely nothing a woman cannot do in any role in any tech company or any other company, by the way. And I think I'd be remiss not saying, look, we finally have a vice president female who I think we're all very proud. Both diversity and inclusion are there. And it's pretty exciting for us. And I think she'll be an example of saying, okay, look, we have the vice president. The next one's definitely going to be the president. So I think it's just, we need to make sure all the women out there need to understand there's no job they can't do. They can step up. We need to support each other in that and make sure that we're looking across all sectors of our business and being respectful and foster that diversity and inclusion. And that's really what we're trying to do with We Power Tech. And you might not even have to have a background in tech in order to be successful in tech, because I have to ask, how did you get in tech after being a communications and speech and language pathology major and have degrees in these areas from my alma mater, Western Kentucky University, which is also your alma mater? Well, for the listening audience out there, Beverly and I were chatting before. We are both from small towns in Kentucky. So if our accents kind of pop out, the Kentucky accent, that's because we're both chatting with each other and we went to the same university. But I did, I have an undergraduate and a master's degree in speech and language pathology. And it was such a great career, by the way. I tell everyone it was probably a perfect career for my business life now because you have to understand abnormal communications and normal communication. So understanding cues of people, how to communicate both in written and verbal ways. So it's, it was super important and a really fantastic career I loved in health. But, you know, I, I kind of woke up one day, Beverly, and I was feeling very much at the time like healthcare felt a bit like Groundhog Day. We weren't changing it enough. And I actually kind of stumbled into a position with a, I'll say a lot of my career has been a little bit like that, but into a company called Keyfile Corporation, which was my first tech company I worked for in Nashua, New Hampshire. And they did workflow and document management. And I went there to actually help them with their healthcare business. But it was amazing. It was, it was like somebody lit up the room for me when I understood this. And I was like, workflow and document management. Where have you been all my life? That's what I need in healthcare. And, you know, because we've been pushing papers, not making any workflow or managing those documents. And it's funny. I became so excited about what technology could do for the mission. And I would just share that it's kind of been the basis of my career from there, I spent 10 years at Microsoft. I did many jobs and ended up running our U.S. federal business. And then here, 10 years, and I've had such a great Amazon, such a great company. But the technology underpinnings of what it can do to support a mission and make it move faster. And it's just kind of been the love of what I've been able to do now is share with customers how they can work backwards from what they're trying to achieve and apply now cloud computing to a problem or an opportunity and solve it in just no time and continue to iterate on it and make it even better. And I'll tell you how I know this. When I first showed up at AWS, I remember telling our CEO, Andy Jassy, he said, we need our customers. It's, it's so much more impactful. We shouldn't be telling the story. If it works, our customers should tell that story because we have a underpinning of customer obsession that's at everything we do. And I, I remember saying to him, you know, Andy, I don't think we'll ever get our government customers to talk about what they do. They just don't do that. 
Well, now fast forward. And if you go look on our site, Beverly, we have thousands now of case studies from customers who want to tell what they do. And I host a summit every year and I have so many customers that want to speak. And let me tell you, it's because they're successful. It's that ability to try and iterate quickly and fail quickly and then move fast. So, so it's changed so much for our customers that they love telling their stories of success today. And that is at the heart and the heartbeat of what we do every day to, again, I'll go back to paving the way for disruptive innovation and really doing things that hopefully make the world a better place at the core. Well, Teresa, I could talk to you forever. I'll have to have you back to talk about the security issues that we talked about a bit earlier, as well as the remarkable work that a lot of people are doing in technology to be disruptive and hopefully make things better, easier for all of us. Thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you, Beverly, for having me and happy holidays to your listeners. Thank you so much and happy holidays to you as well. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.